This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. The over the discussion about payday loan places. You've heard about this, right, here in Hamilton. Hamilton is in the process of limiting. They're trying to pass a bylaw that will limit the number and the scope and the availability of payday loan operations. And the reason behind it, again, I'm sure you've heard this before, is the idea that they are a predatory business. That's the word that keeps getting thrown around for these things. It's the word that's often used. That they take advantage, so go the critics, of lower income people who are easy prey, who need money, and then they have to, they take a loan and then they have to pay it back at exorbitant rates that they can't pay back. So it's just a spiral that circles, that swirls downhill. You've heard all this before, right? That part? Well, as a result of how people perceive this type of business, many people, there have been many who have applauded the move to limit them. And while there clearly, I think clearly, I'm willing to say that, will be some benefits to some, there could also, it seems, according to my next guest anyway, be some unintended consequences that could negatively affect others, depending on how hard we crack down on these things. Brian Dykma is the program director, uh, work in economics for Cardis, a local think tank. He joins me now. Brian, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. You have done an interesting study. Uh, it's called Banking on the Margins. I, uh, it's about this industry. I've read it over today. Um, before we get going, though, because you've looked at this now, are you, first of all, arguing that there should be no restrictions whatsoever placed on this industry? No, not at all, actually. You know, I have uh, a variety of reasons, some economic and, and some religious, uh, to, to think that these are, these are bad things. The, the way I like to describe payday lending is this it's if someone's drowning you payday lenders are uh, people who throw them a a life vest like a life ring but the life ring has a hole in it so it's going to go it's going to sink after a few minutes and so when it starts to sink again they say well do you need another one and so the answer is yes and they want you to pay for it so on the one hand um they do keep people afloat uh and that's important to recognize but on the other hand there's there's something wrong when you're when you know that somebody is down and out and you are charging them all kinds of money for that there's there's all kinds of um, uh, reasons why that's bad morally, uh, religiously, I have a problem with it. I know that some of my um, uh, other uh, brothers and sisters do as well. But really, what it's like is is like saying, "Here's a life raft, but it's got a hole in it, and you're going to need to pay me to get another one." So the problem is, though, that if you're going to get rid of the person who's throwing them a life raft, what is that person going to do? They're likely going to be in trouble too. So they're bad. Uh, payday loans uh, and the lenders uh, are not great things, but sometimes uh, a bad thing is better than a worse thing. To give some context for this, because it is, uh, I don't know that everybody, I mean, everyone's heard about this, but just to, to let people understand what we're talking about, uh, in your study, there was a graphic that I was spent a lot of time looking at just to make sure I read it right. And if I took a $300 loan from one of these places over 10 days, if I took a, not from one of these places, if I took a $300 loan and I did it on my line of credit, I would owe at the end of that 58 cents in extra interest. So I'd owe $300 and 58 cents. If I did it on my credit card after 10 days, I would owe $301.64. So $1.64 of interest. If I take it out at one of these businesses at the end of this, I will owe $363, $63, what, 20%, more than 20% in payback. That is a, that's pretty illustrative. That's a pretty steep amount to pay back. 
Yeah, it's crazy. It's a, it's a, it's a high, high amount. Um, and the reason, the reason why they charge, there's a number of reasons why they charge that, but often the people going uh, to these places don't have access to other credit. So um, you may have seen in the report, too, that a lot of people who are going to payday lenders either don't, don't um, have access to credit cards or their credit's not good enough, or they've maxed them out, right? So the way, the way that these payday loan places are, a best good way to describe them is sort of a lender of last resort. Um, and but you're absolutely right. The costs are extremely high. Um, you know, I think that the big challenge for them, and I think this is some of the good stuff that um, the provincial government has done, is is look to get away from the need to pay that that chunk, that three hundred dollars back, plus that three that sixty three bucks. Right? If you had to pay, if you're already short three hundred bucks and you have to pay the three sixty three back in one lump sum, that's what that's what begins the cycle, right? It's the big the big lump sum, and then having to pay that lump sum back again, and that's what leads to the cycle. So there are ways that, that regulation can help address those concerns, but the, the, the way that the city's going to do it um, is actually not very helpful and actually is likely to, to lead to, I think, some, some, some problems, not just for borrowers, but um, works against some basic, uh, basic economics. Let's get to that in just one second, because I just want to ask this then. If the numbers are so bad, if the, if the rates are so bad and the payback is so high and so punitive... You would think that nobody would use them, and yet they're exploding all over the place, which tells me on basic economics and business, you only open a business if there's people who are going to do business. So lots and lots and lots of people obviously use these. So you've, you've got a, a thing that you, maybe you don't want to, but there's lots of call for them. Right. There, so that, that, you're absolutely right. You're getting to the, the nub of the issue, which is the fact that there seems to be a demand for this product. And, and why is it that people um, have such a demand for these, these crazily priced loans? Well, that's that's a bigger issue, and in my mind, there's there's some cultural things at play there. We don't we don't really value thrift anymore. Um, uh, but let's be honest: the banks and some of the credit card companies also deserve some of the blame. They're the ones who are offering, you know, low rates. If you go get a mortgage, they say, well, you know, you qualify. Uh, you only need a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar mortgage, but you qualify for a five hundred thousand dollars. There is, I think, a deeper cultural issue with with debt, um, and the reality is that the payday loan stores are the sort of end of the line, and they're the worst. Um, but I don't think they're the only ones to blame. I think there's a broader cultural issue at play here. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on nine hundred CHML. Brian, just before the break. We were talking about the fact that they have these, despite the fact that there are these super high costs that you have to pay back for taking out a loan, these businesses, not just in Hamilton, all over the place, are exploding, which again suggests that some people need it. Whether we like it or not, there are people who clearly need to find money so they can either pay their bills or put food on the table or whatever else. And whether that's because of poverty, whether that's because of bad financial management, whether that's whatever... Clearly, there are people who feel they need to find extra money. So if you take these away or you make it really difficult to get access to them, what do those people do when they don't have any money now? Yeah, they, they, they have to find uh, other, other ways of getting that money. Uh, sometimes, sometimes those are more expensive things. So, for instance, if you have an NSF and you get a couple of bounce checks, sometimes that can be more money than the cost of taking a loan. So that's that's one option that people do. Another thing is, say, 
um, they'll let their hydro go and they'll have to get it reconnected and that will cost more the loan or most worryingly they'll turn to the mob and they'll go to an underground lender and that's according to the research um, tends to be quite uh, often what happens when Does that you, really happen because that sounds so Hollywood that you would do that but that really happens <laughs> Well, it really does. Uh, we've got data from Japan, from Europe, from a number of different places, including in the States, that uh, use of um, uh, under, underground lenders, and it's not always the mob, right? Um, but, but the fact is, when, once you're going underground, it gets out of the realm of regulation, and the ability to hold those people accountable disappears. And so whether we're talking about the Bank of the Hell's Angels, which, you know, heaven forbid we should go in that direction, or the Mafia, which is there, um, or we're talking just about an operation that goes under. Either way, that's a bad that's a bad thing because it gets out of the public interest and you can't hold those folks accountable. Okay, so the idea that we're going to put some sort of bylaws and some sort of limits, as I understand it in Hamilton right now, the plan is that there would be a maximum eventually of one per ward and in the 15 wards in the city and for a total of 15 and that they would not be, they would be forced to be out of the lowest income area. So it makes it difficult. It's not very easy. It's going to make it much more challenging to get this. Um, ultimately, that sounds like largely it's a positive thing. Largely. Is it? Yeah. Uh, well, think, think of it this way. If you're, if you're a payday lender, what would you want more than having the government say you can be the only one to do the job, right? There, there's, something, there's something inherently wrong with that. Because what what's going to end up happening is that the government is going to get rid of your competition for you. And so there's going to be nobody to offer any alternative. That's the real concern here, that if we go to 15, to, uh, 15 per city, it's unlikely that that demand is going to disappear. That's the real thing we have to keep in mind. People need money. And, and you know, the reasons we showed in our paper, what... They need it for things like necessities, uh, getting through temporary reduction in income. It's only 13% that, you know, go to use, you know, go to a payday loan to go, you know, go to the pub or something like that. So that demand is real. And if you get rid of all those people, the people are going to be forced to go to more expensive places or they're going to be forced to go to other places uh, to take longer trips to get there. So what I think we should do is focus a little bit less on the people that we don't like. And, And don't get me wrong, I'm not a huge fan of these places myself, but don't focus on the lenders. Focus on the borrowers and focus on their needs and how do we make their lives better. So is there any place that has done that? Are there any examples where this has actually happened? Yeah, let, let me give you a great example. There's one uh, place in Ottawa. Um, it's a it's one of the things that is exactly what we recommended in our report. It's called the Causeway Work Center, and they've partnered with credit unions, Alterna, and a number of other uh, credit unions in Ottawa to offer low-cost, short-term loans for people. And, you know, that's an incredible story. I'd love to see First Ontario uh, get into that game. I'd love to see Meridian and Duca and all the other... It's a private. uh, It's a private sector company? Absolutely. And and what's interesting is the really great thing that the Ontario government did was they basically said, you know what, we're going to let credit unions do their thing. Credit unions are no longer regulated uh, on payday loans, so they can try all kinds of new things. That is one of the best pieces that the the government did, and we're going to release a report card on this in a couple of days. But what what has happened is that that places like First Ontario, like Libro, all these other places can now try new things to offer these benefits. And I think that's really where it matters. What we want to do is get people away from that one end of the spectrum where the costs for borrowing are extremely high, 
and move them as close as we can to the best kind of loan, which is the loan that you get from, say, your mom or dad, right, where the the collateral is not in terms of money, it's terms of trust and relationship. And that's that's really what Causeway is doing in Ottawa, and I think that's the promise for the future. And Brian, Hamilton. for a business, if you're a private business, because uh, I'll be honest with you, there's a to me, it becomes a difficult thing if you were going to answer me right then. Let's have another public corporation that is going to be handing out more money. I, I, don't, I don't know that's the answer to be very honest, but if it's a private company, even if they don't get the money back in a huge, massive lump sum 10 days on, but if you can make money in the long term, does that not still mean they make money? Absolutely. And, and, and credit unions, credit unions are private. They're not public and, and don't get me wrong. I don't want, uh, you know, I don't want all of a sudden the government to get into this. That would be, that'd be bad for business. Um, but uh, be bad for the consumer, I think ultimately too. Um, but if you have a credit union, what they do is they try to look after their members' interests. So, they want their members to make a profit, so they're in it for the long haul. But what they're they're not in it to make the profit right now at all costs, right? They they would much rather see that that customer get on their feet and become a long term customer and build and build uh, a profit through through you know normal borrowing things like credit lines or or credit cards or you know um, that type of thing. So I, I hate to do this. I only have fifteen seconds left, and I wish I could yeah. do. Why has that not then happened here already? If it's happened in Ottawa, why is it not here? Well, I think we're waiting on it. I think there needs to be, I think if the government were to say, the the city government were to say, we'll lend you support for things like marketing, it might help uh, an organization like First Ontario do that. But they'd have to move away from the restrictions and more towards enabling. And I think that's the path forward. Love to talk more about this, and we probably will down the road. Brian Dykma from Cardis, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. It's always a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Now, I don't know where you're going to come on this one. Uh, Everyone's going to have a different point of view. But Ontario's Minister of Labour had an interesting comment today. We all have heard the stories over the last number of weeks, number of days, really, pardon me, not really number of weeks, number of days, about the increase in the minimum wage. And Tim Hortons, of course, the franchise run by Tim Hortons' daughter and Ron Joyce's son ran into that huge PR fiasco and everything else. Well, it's an ongoing story. So Ontario's Minister of Labour today according to the Canadian press, has a suggestion for those who, for those businesses, big or small, who are struggling with the idea of how they're going to pay the increase in minimum wage and keep their business afloat. The simple, simple, simple answer, of course, simply raise your prices. Everybody, just raise your prices across the board. Every small business, if you're dealing with this stuff, raise your prices. Well, I'm not entirely sure how many people are going to be thrilled if suddenly prices are going up equal to the increase in minimum wage. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business joins me right now. Now, Marvin came on here. By the way, thanks for coming on, Marvin. No problem at all. Uh, Marvin came on here thinking I was going to ask him a completely different question on a completely different topic, but I throw you a curveball. We'll get to the other one in a minute. Um, If companies across the province, multiple, multitudinous companies across this province were suddenly to decide... We're going to raise our prices commensurate with the amount of the minimum raise increase. So let's say even 20% across the board. How does that work? Uh, there's the flaw in your argument right there. So let's use a Tim Hortons example, can we? Yes. Um, I know you're not an expert at this, but roughly, you know, your typical Tim Hortons, how many cups of coffee do they serve in an hour? Oh, your typical one? Let's go with 300. All right, well, let's make it easier. Let's call it 200. Okay. 200. The minimum... Uh, Is that right? Well, it's in the right ball. Okay. The minimum wage went up 240 cents an hour. 
So if I have to raise the cup of coffee, it's one cent per cup of coffee for every employee I have at my Tim Hortons. So during the rush hour, maybe I have six, seven, eight employees there. If I raise a cup of coffee 10 cents, I've easily covered the cost of the minimum wage increase. And I use that example because the mistake people make is they think a 22% increase in the minimum wage automatically means a 22% increase in the price of something. Labor is, for most of these things, a relatively small part of the overall whole. So in this case, a dime, and if you want to even be generous, look, raise the donuts a nickel, or the coffee a dime, you should have lots of extra money to play around here. And this in particular is why this was such a nightmare for Tim Hortons. Uh, and, and I'm not going to let them off the hook. Ron Joyce Jr. is going to inherit $1.4 billion when Ron Joyce passes away. And I'm sorry to say this, Ron Joyce is not going to be here forever. He's probably got a finite you know, 5, 10, 15 more years on planet. You, you, you're that desperate? And then look, your franchise is doing so badly that you and your wife, the lovely daughter of Tim Horton, are vacationing in Florida in a, a home that you have down there. You're not in some trailer park outside of Lakeland, Florida. You're living a pretty good life, and, and you need to do this nickel and dime your employees like this. They certainly use the wrong example. I am absolutely certain there are small business people listening to us tonight, Scott, who are between a rock and a hard place. And absolutely, raise your prices a little bit. Cover the cost of this. No one's going to begrudge you that. But for these franchisees, they were the wrong people to be I, 100 percent, I agree with you. They were the ones who were the wrong ones to do this. However, let me go back on what you just said. Uh, I rarely do this. I rarely challenge you because I simply take everything you say at face value because well, I believe right what there. you tell me. However, I agree with your comment. I agree with your general premise that says, yeah, you go to Tim Hortons and it's now 15 cents extra when you add your coffee and your donut. But if I have to do that for every small business or every business that I shop at or buy something from and I am on a fixed income, that is suddenly not 15 cents added. That may be five, six, ten dollars a day by the time I do everything. Uh, because not everything is a cup of coffee. Something of 10% or a, a 2% increase, maybe a lot more. And if I am on a fixed income or I don't have a huge increase coming to me, that suddenly becomes across the board a big chunk. Right. So your comment is well taken. I did an open line program last week for CBC, and the very first caller was somebody on the Ontario Works Disability Program. He said, it's not fair. These people are getting a 22% wage increase. Why am I not getting one to match? And I, I have to, again, say we have to unbundle this. There's a certain tyranny here that says no one can benefit until I personally can benefit. I absolutely agree that, that people, pensioners who are on a fixed income, people who are on a, a, a unemployment insurance, people who are on Ontario Works or the disability programs, there's been no change to yours. So, yes, your cost is going to be more. And even if it is marginally more, even if it is 3 or 5%, it's 3 or 5% you don't have. But that has to be a separate argument. This move was not intended to deal with your kind of poverty. It was intended to deal with what we call working poor, people who have 35, 40 hours a week and yet are still falling below the poverty line. There are other things we need to do, and I would press the provincial government on this and say, okay, what are you doing for the people on welfare? What are you doing for the people who have disability checks? Look, their costs have gone up, and I think with an election looming, this is a great election issue, but don't connect the working poverty problem to the other challenges that are out there. I'm one of those people who believe we should light the candle rather than curse the darkness. No, and you know what? F fair enough on that one. The, the I guess where today, when I heard the Minister of Labor sort of 
casually throw this out there, understanding that the politicians, if they fall behind the cost of living, they'll vote themselves an increase in pay that will cover this. He has no clue of what the people, as you just described, who are the working poor or who are on a fixed income are going to have to face if their cost of living goes up. To me, it was more a an antagonizing comment by someone who's never going to have to deal with this stuff. Yeah, fair, fair enough. I, I actually, I'm going to try to come to his defense a little bit. I think he does understand the issue. But remember that, again, that what I call the tyranny of the few, your problem, the one that you just mentioned about the fixed income, actually is very few Ontarians in that boat, probably something on the order of 5 to 10%. I don't want to discard them, but again, if 90% can pay to carry the freight, let, let's focus on that, and then let's deal with the other issue separately. I, I just think what we had in this province is uh, we have the highest rate of people earning uh, $15 an hour or less in, the, in Canada. Certainly at the minimum wage, 9% of Ontario workers earn the minimum wage. The next biggest province is Prince Edward Island with only 8%. I don't think we want to compare ourselves to Prince Edward Island. And after that, the next province is like 7.2%. We have developed our economy by relying on minimum wage workers. And what we did was for a decade, half under the Conservatives, half under the Liberals, we froze the minimum wage. The Liberals argued that the recession of 7 and 8, we just couldn't afford to increase the minimum wage. Of course, the Conservatives before that said it wasn't necessary, there are other things to do. But we basically instituted formal poverty into the province, and this is an attempt. And it's not going to fix it all. It's not going to pull everybody above the poverty line, and there are lots of other examples. But it's an attempt to right a wrong, and I think in that sense, I give them credit for doing something. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Let's change it up a little bit, Marvin, and go back to what I had originally brought you on here to talk about in the first place, which was interest rate increases. Apparently, uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada is going to raise the interest rate again next week. Please explain why he would do this and what this will mean to us, the average person. So let me just uh, change your statement ever so slightly. He is likely to raise the interest okay. rates next week. It's also possible he'll wait until March 1st. Those are the first two meetings where they set these policies, one on January the 18th, the next one on March the 1st. So uh, a couple things got to take you back. In December, right around the middle of December, the uh, Federal Reserve Board in the United States met, and they raised the interest rates in the United States for a third time. We only raised them twice last year. In fact, we met the week before them. We didn't move, but they did. And that always puts a little pressure on the Bank of Canada to follow suit. Uh, Bank of Canada doesn't always go immediately thereafter. They need other data. And we had two surprising jobs reports, one for the month of November, one for the month of December, that showed a lot of jobs created in Canada. In fact, the December one, people like me thought, well, you know, it's kind of a mixed month. You, you let go some some people at the end of the year, but then you bring in some part-time workers to get through the holidays. We expected 1,000, 2,000 jobs across Canada. We got nearly 75,000 jobs, and that mirrors the same kind of an increase in November. What that says is that while we thought the economy was cooling a bit in the second half of the year, it's looking like at least at the end of the year it was really picking up a lot of steam. So as we head into 2018, to me the question isn't if the interest rates were going to go up, but when. I thought the Bank of Canada might wait till March the 1st. That would allow them to monitor the impact of that minimum wage increase you and I just talked about, especially in Ontario. That's the largest province by far. And also to see you know, how the NAFTA talks are going. That would give you another meeting or two. Are they about to be torn up? Do we need to do anything to protect the economy that way? 
But because of the strength of this uh, most recent economic data and that inflation is now trending right around that 2% level, and that's kind of the maximum the Bank of Canada tolerates, they're looking at a quarter percent increase. I think it will be followed up probably in the late summer with a second one. I only anticipate two. What that means for the ordinary person, if you have a fixed mortgage, it means nothing until you have to renegotiate. If you have a variable mortgage or if you're looking to renegotiate, you're probably going to be looking at a mortgage in the 4% range rather than the 3% range, which you've gotten used to in the past. Again, easy for me to say that doesn't seem like very much, an extra three-quarters of a percent or 1% on your mortgage. But if you're carrying a $100,000 mortgage, 1% is $1,000 of interest more that you'll be paying. Obviously, if it's $500,000 mortgage, it's $5,000 more of interest you'll be paying. And that the whole thing about chickens coming home to roost. Uh-huh. Well, and we've heard, how many times have we heard from different people over the last number of years, including probably you, that uh, a lot of Canadians are in a position where they have tapped out or maxed out and they would be in trouble if there was a significant interest rate increase. I'm wondering how many people, I mean, how many Canadians are looking at this right now going, oh boy, uh, that's going to be tough on me. Well, we think because, again, these interest rates are relatively small increases. I know two times one quarter is a half a percent last year, but you also have to remember that it went down the year before to, to give us a little momentum through the, the terrible fire that happened out west and the big changes in oil prices. So we just removed some support. Even this year, I think it's only going to be another half a percent. So the interest rates are warming up, but they're warming up slowly. In other words, you should have plenty of warning to get your financial house in order. If they were to shoot up 2% in one year, then I think you'd be talking about people in deep trouble. But as it is, I think you should be able to absorb this, but you should also heed the warning here that says if your spending is not in control, now is the time to get it under control. The the U.S. just made it a lot easier for businesses. They did the big tax cut, and they have said you can bring money back and do all these things to try and create investment and to do business down there. If we are raising the interest rates here so borrowing becomes more expensive, are we, are we while, while there are reasons to do this, are we making it more difficult for ourselves business-wise? No, I don't think this because, again, we're, we're sort of keeping in step with what the Federal Reserve Board is doing in the United States. So I don't think that's the problem. And in fact, Scott, for the last decade, we've had the lowest interest rates in Canadian history, in North American history, if I throw in the Americans. And we actually saw the business community not really reacting to this. In other words, they weren't going out and borrowing. They were just sitting on any cash they had. So it doesn't seem to be that part of it, the, the interest rate that causes investment. What the bigger news was, of course, this idea that they could write off these expenditures faster and they were lowering the tax rates. I suspect in the spring of budgets you're going to hear, both federally and provincially, uh, the counterparts are going to try to address that. In other words, Canada has enjoyed a better tax rate for business in the United States. That at least got some investment in Canada. We're losing a bit of that advantage, so I would not be surprised if federally they try to do something and then the Liberals will try to do something to take it into the election to say, I hear your pain, let's cut the interest rates a little bit. Having said that also, though, we don't want to race to zero. In other words, businesses do have a responsibility to pick up some of the costs of government. We can reduce it, make it a little better for them, but we don't want to shift all of that burden onto individual people. So it's a balancing act. 
create a positive environment, but not one that is overly subsidized either. Well, I only have 30 seconds left. So, the, But when we've been through the recession, been through tough times, they were dropping the rates because that was to stimulate the economy. Right. Now that things are good, is part of the reason also that we would raise these back up is so that if bad times come again, which they inevitably will, we actually have that safety net? Because once you get to zero, you can't do much more. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, we rather see interest rates in the 5 to 6% range for homeowners, mortgages in that range. That means a Bank of Canada rate closer to 3%. That then gives you that ability to pull back some of the support. By the way, similar to that is balancing the budget. Provinces and federal governments run deficits during the difficult economic times. But if we're now entering a better time, we should be getting closer to balance. Again, we're going to have that ability then if we go into tough times to borrow again. We don't want to be borrowing during the good times. Uh, I think we are borrowing during the good times, though, and going At into a deficit. Federally. But we'll, we'll have to talk about that next time, see how that works. Marvin Ryder, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Don Robertson from the Dundas Real McCoys, freshly back in Canada after spending Christmas on the beach in California. How was that? Different. I bet. Not... Uh the only part that was like Christmas was about 45 minutes Christmas morning. And then we headed to the beach. And hearing about all the snowstorms back here, you really start, start pining for the snow. It's uh, We live out in the I country. bet you're pining for the snow when you're down in California on the beach. You weren't pining at all. Wow. You it, had slipped into your leopard skin thong and you were just riding the wave down there. Yeah, but they put those pylons <laughs> around me when we went to the beach. That was embarrassing, but I knew it was going to come. It was... It was interesting. It was. It's a cool place to go. I'd never really been there as a tourist, and we did all the touristy things. And one of the things uh, um, Taylor and I did is we went to the Ronald Reagan Library. Oh yeah. And the only books there were in the tuck shop on the way out. But uh, I guess they call it a library. And his uh, his Air Force One was in the place. Wow. And the helicopter he used to use in the building or outside the building. In the building. It's a big building. And it. And we walked into the room where his, uh, I think it was a 727 was sitting, and it didn't fill the room. Could you go into it? Oh, yeah. We went through the whole thing, where he sat, where they had dinner, where, really? the, where the cooks were. See, I thought you weren't a lot. I thought they didn't do that because they didn't want anyone to know how the seven, how the Air Force Ones were laid out. I always thought that was a secret thing. You couldn't do that. There was a, uh, there was a desk where the decoder for the nuclear, the box. or Did you Try pressing it? I but I tried to pull it out. They get a little upset with me. I think it's probably not working. <laughs> I would hope. I would hope. Don Robertson starts World War Three by <laughs> leaning on Ronald Reagan's desk. Um, you know what else could be World War Three, Don? Since you are here to talk sports, and I'm glad you're back. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, it was great. Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, I just saw this between segments here uh, during the news break. And I wasn't even going to talk about this with you because I am frankly so tired of this guy already. He hasn't even landed in Hamilton, and I have reached full exhaustion with Johnny Manziel, possibly future quarterback of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, possibly. I, I truly could care fully less about him at this point. However, we know that if he does sign here, it'll be a big, big, big deal. Anyway, his agent posted something on Facebook just let me see what time he actually posted this. Uh, 54 minutes ago. I read it in the car. Hopefully there. not. Yeah, hopefully not while driving no. in. <laughs> and among other things, he talks about how he wants to work with the Ticats and how he loves June Jones and blah, blah, blah. Then he says this. We made the decision to deal exclusively with Hamilton and give them until January 31st 
to work out a fair deal to make him their quarterback. So there will not be, and this is still him, so there will not be any ambiguity in regards to financial expectations. And so the public understands how seriously Johnny is considering this move. I will tell you, we believe fair deal means on par with what Hamilton has paid their QB in recent years, despite not having much on-field success. If we cannot reach a deal with Hamilton by that date, we will turn our focus to several other professional options readily available to us. So, Don, Johnny Manziel... Having never played a down of CFL football, having not played football at all for three years, before he comes to Hamilton, is expecting to be the highest paid player, roughly, in the CFL, equal to Zach Caleros, or he is going to look elsewhere. So the agents put a stake in the ground. The agent wants Johnny Manziel, who's much celebrated uh, Heisman Trophy and coming out of college and than the uh, not so much after than that. the plane crash um, wants Johnny Manziel to be paid the same as the backup quarterback the Ty Cats had last year. Well, the, there's several well, ways to look at it. Okay, right? although the, yes, okay, fair right? enough, fair enough. However, when he was signed to that contract before he blew out his knee, he was on. He was ready to be. He would have been probably the most outstanding player in the CFL. He was a starting quarterback for a team that had twice been to the Grey Cup. So and lost twelve straight and lost his job. Lost twelve uh, straight. Yeah. No, I uh, look uh, when the contract was signed with Zach Caleros, it was at a different time. This happens with athletes at times. You sign a guy low and he well exceeds expectations, and you get a deal. Or you sign a guy high because he's great and things the floor falls out. In his case, the floor fell out in the case, in, with his knee. He blew out his knee and was didn't appear certainly in Hamilton to be the same guy. But he was signed as arguably the best player in the league at the time that contract was signed. Fair argument. So you're now saying, and I don't think, quite honestly, that Ticats head coach June Jones helped the negotiations one little bit by saying Johnny Manziel would probably be the greatest player ever to play in Canada. That doesn't seem to be going to be help, too helpful to Kent Austin in negotiating a deal when your head coach has already said you're the best. Cut him off at the knees. Cutting off Kent Austin at the knees for yep. negotiating. Yeah, Saying that, this guy will be the best ever, I think. Doesn't th- make it easy to then ask him to take less. I think that guy in Edmonton that's in the NFL Hall of Fame was a pretty good player. Orrin Moon might be pretty good, yep. D- Doug Flutie. I think they're looking at Doug Flutie and what Doug Flutie did up here and think Johnny Manziel but can Doug do Doug Flutie, when he came here, wasn't the highest paid quarterback before he took a snap. He eventually may have been. I don't even know where Doug Flutie's salary was, but Doug Flutie was not the highest paid player in the league, I guarantee you, when he arrived. Well, I think if I'm the agent, I'm not sure I throw that statement out, but he's certainly, like I said, put a stake in the ground, and we want uh, want to be paid the highest. And I'm sure through conversations that marketing has come up, ticket sales have come up. Oh, I'm sure. Sweater sales. I'm sure. And when you're trying to bring a guy to your team, you tell him what he's going to do for you. And there's a fine line between saying, we know we can sell more tickets, we know we can sell more advertising, we can sell more marketing if we have a player of your status. All the time you're telling him that, you're pulling the dirt over top of yourself in the hole. And you really put yourself in a tough position. I'd sign him to that contract in a heartbeat, as long as it's not guaranteed. See, if I'm the tie cat, they're not I, CFL contracts. Traditionally, are not guaranteed contracts. No, no, no but uh, and he's played in the, he's played in the NFL. 
If I'm the Hamilton Tiger Cats and a guy who's never played a down of CFL football and has not played football at all for a while and was not a wildly successful guy in the NFL in any way, says, I want to be the highest paid, the Ticats own his rights for a year. I tell the agent, you know what? We own his rights. We're not trading his rights. Johnny's not playing football for a year until you come to your senses, but we're sure not paying you half a million bucks for this guy. And, and worse than that, worse than that, this whole thing has been positioned that Johnny Manziel is a reformed guy who just wants to come. He just loves football. He just wants to come and play football. And now what we're finding is he's going to walk in the locker room basically as at least positioned by his agent this way. He is the king of the egos already before he's even set foot in the CFL locker room. Now, whether that's him or his agent, it still is him. It still reflects on him. And it looks to me like this guy is money Manziel, you know, the money sign that he used to do. That's just what he's all about again. That's what he's all about again. That's the, that's the perception I'm getting from this. I'd still let him make half a million dollars. I mean, if you if, if you can pull it off, you say this is, we don't mind if you're the highest paid player in the league, but you've got to earn it. And we're going to give you so much a win. And it's going to be incentive laden, but you can get your half a million dollars. I mean, you're, you're going to have to make him accomplish something before you write a blank check. I mean, obviously, if he could sign in the NFL, he would have. Sure, he would have. Sure. Uh, so it's, it's clear nobody in the NFL wants him. And if I'm Johnny Football, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to come up here, keep my nose clean for two years. I'm going to show how good I can be. But that's not what he's doing with this. You're already announcing to people, I am better than every other player in the league. I want to be the highest paid player. I am better than you before I've even set foot on the field. That's what he's saying. But but the agent is only echoing what the head coach of the Hamilton Ticats Uh, has already said. No, I I know, which is why it was a... He's saying, where do you come up with that idea? a bonehead thing to say from the start. Where did I come up with that idea? I didn't come up with the idea. June Jones came up with the idea. I didn't say it. He did. When June Jones said that, he should have immediately been rushed into the tent for concussion testing. Because clearly something bumped his head when he said that. But nonetheless, he's now created this situation that you are going to have to deal with. And, and I, th- I think he'll, if he signs, he'll be the starter. Well, see, now there's, that would be... I listened to uh, 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 Bill Kelly and Rick Zamprin today. And, a wise uh, move, by the way. Have tremendous respect for both. Uh, you know, Bill's a Ticat fan, longtime Ticat season ticket holder and former Rick, PR announcer for the PA announcer for the stadium for many years. Rick uh, Rick may know as much about uh, the Ticats as anybody in the in the city in the media in the uh, outside the print media anyway. And neither neither one of them think he's going to be the starter. Uh, uh, so how do you pay a guy? Mazzoli, here's how he's going to get the starting job. As soon as Mazzoli has one incomplete pass. <laughs> Well, maybe at not. training camp, he's out. <laughs> maybe not quite that much, but no, you're. But you're right. All right, two in a row, and he's out. If you're paying a guy half a million bills, yep, he's not doing it to stand on the sideline holding a clipboard. Nope. And yet, although we, you just did it last year, but I get it. But but that was for a different reason because he had things no. had he had been your starter. And then he failed as the starter. He couldn't win, so they didn't start the season. They didn't say, here's $500,000, now don't do anything. Right? It was, here's your job. He had the job for 10 games or whatever it was, like eight yep. games, whatever. And then they decided to make the change. You are not going to give a guy $500,000 to stand on the sidelines. Plus, if Johnny Manziel comes here, and I've said this all along, you're going to have ESPN and Fox Sports and all the American networks. Every American network is going to be up here wanting to 
how long are you going to actually have him on the sideline with all the pressure for him to play? So I agree with you. He's going to play if he comes here. But we also know, Don, that player after player after player after player, especially quarterbacks who have come up from the States, regardless of their talent, have not done well in the CFL. You have to learn the game. And so I don't hold out much hope that if Johnny Manziel is starting in week two or week three of the CFL season, that the Ticats are in a good spot. I really don't. I really don't. No, if you're, if he's, if he's not, if he doesn't get the starting job to start the season, the only way he gets it is if uh, uh, there's an injury. Or fan pressure. There's just so much pressure on the team to well, put him in. they're going to have in. to be 1-2 or 0-3. You're right. So either, if he doesn't get the job, when he does get it, it's not going to be a great situation. I, just, I, I I think they just start him. You you sign a guy like that, pay him that kind of money, you're going to make him your starter. No, I don't. I, right now, if you're if that's your attitude via your agent, and you are already taking the position that you are Canada's greatest athlete, or at least the CFL's greatest athlete, I, I honestly I'm not interested in having that guy on my team. I'm really not. Because you know that he's only here for Johnny Manziel. He's not here for the team. He's not here for football. He is here for Johnny Manziel. And how does that work? You're a guy, you play, you manage team sports. How does that work when you have a guy who's only here for himself? Rarely very well. It, it's never an ideal situation, but there aren't any guys in the CFL that would love to prove that they're so good they can play in the NFL. Oh, he wants to get back in the NFL, no question about At, it. Which makes it all about him. Now, the good part, if you're a Hamilton Ticat fan, is he has to do very well to get that opportunity. So he's he's not looking this as a, a, as a retirement uh, gig up here, right? Because it's three hundred. No, it's, it's a springboard. It's three hundred fifty thousand dollars American, for one thing. Um, so he's not retiring on that kind of cash. He's got to come up here perform. That's a, that's a big weekend for him. Be, that's right. <laughs> if he's the backup, he. <laughs> he it's might, a weekend in Cabo right there that Johnny just blew his CFL salary. Yeah. Well, he'll better keep the number of the rehab place if he's the backup up here because that won't sit well with anybody. Let me uh, let me switch up a second because I hadn't planned to talk about Johnny Menzel, but this, as I say, this release from the agent just uh, came over well before we came on. There was somebody I wanted to talk about, though, who is another NFL, former NFL player who has a checkered past, which is saying it l- mildly. Buffalo Bills played in Jacksonville yesterday in their playoff game. One of the worst playoff games ever, by the way. Truly a a... a crime against football. It was, it, I mean, that thing, if, if you could commit an atrocity against a sport, that was that game. It was so bad. Jace, Jay McQueen, who does yep. weather here, he and his wife drove down. He's a huge Bills fan. I felt so badly for him. I don't know how long it takes, 20, 22, 23 hours to drive to Jacksonville. He's never getting those 48 hours roughly back of his life plus the time of the game. That was just a horrendous game. It's 50 degrees though. It's beautiful there. Oh, the weather was, sure, the weather was lovely, but you had two quarterbacks, speaking of quarterbacks, you had two quarterbacks, honestly, who were to football, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor here, they were to football what botulism is to happy stomachs. I don't know. I mean, it was awful. They were horrible. It was a horrible game. Nonetheless, did you see who was hanging around tailgating with the Bills fans? Did you happen to see who was in the parking lot taking pictures and glad-handing with Bills fans? 
Who would be the Buffalo Bill alum who would be probably the worst case scenario for hanging around with the fans? Wide left, wide right. No, Jim Kelly. No, Scott Norwood had a bad kick, but he's a wonderful human being. Yes, he is. I'm talking about a horrible human being. O.J. Simpson was tailgating with Bill's fans. There are pictures all over social media of O.J. Simpson, big smile on his face, having a grand old time with Bill's fans. If you were down there, and if you were a Bill's fan, and you're decked out in your Bill's regalia, and you're having a tailgate party and having a few beers, and O.J. Stinkin' Simpson walks up nearby. And wants 50 bucks to sign your sweater. No, I think he's trying. He's on the O.J. Simpson rehab tour right now, and he's suing a casino for something for like $100 million, so he's figuring he'll be okay. It's true. He actually is. But if O.J. Simpson was walking by, do you yell, hey, Juice, come on over, take a picture, or do you basically go, Pugh, and turn your back to him? Well, I'm not going to talk to him, so if you're asking me, I'm not interested. See, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I But I'm not the biggest Buffalo Bills fan. It doesn't matter. He's He is one of the most infamous people on planet Earth. Yep. Without question. So there are people who look and go, oh, it's a famous guy. It's, it's the juice. It's OJ. Let's get a picture. If I knew someone, if I put on social media, if I went on Facebook or I went on Twitter or somewhere, Don, and someone I knew was posing with OJ Simpson, I would be so disappointed in them. Unfriend them. Quit following them. I would be so disappointed. I, I said this before we came in here today to Jeff Story, who runs the place here. I said, I'm really hoping that Jay McQueen doesn't post a photo of himself with OJ Simpson. That'll be really awkward because at... The guy, everybody knows what happened, except for 12 people on a Los Angeles County jury. How people can just smile and giggle and hand him a beer and say, hey, OJ, let's take a picture. I, I just, I, I don't get it. I would have I would have done the, the Italian grandma, the and then turned my back. That's what I would have done if he'd walked by. And he wouldn't have cared. Oh, of course he wouldn't care, but I am not getting myself having a picture for all eternity that goes on the internet and never goes away of me standing with a two-time murderer. I'm surprised he was there, but as you say, if he's trying to rebuild his image, I guess, um, I I don't get it. I mean, I get Pete Rose selling autographs uh, the Hall of Fame weekend, but uh, OJ should probably take the humble approach and low profile and everything else because obviously he's very recognizable. Oh, yeah. Especially I th- at a Buffalo game. I thought it was Photoshopped at first. When I saw a couple photos start popping up, I thought, oh, someone, th- okay, it's a joke, ha, ha, ha. There's no way O.J. Simpson actually went to the Buffalo Bills tailgate party. Yep. Apparently he did. Many reports, many photos all have O.J. Simpson hanging out with people, smiling and glad-handing. Wow. I I don't know if he was wearing a glove or not. Couldn't really see. One hand was behind their back in most pictures, so I couldn't really tell if he was wearing one of the gloves. Well, they don't fit. Wouldn't keep more. That's true enough. Well, you know what? He's maybe shrunk a bit when he's in prison. He hasn't been working out as much. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, don't. Last I'd picture like, I saw, he hadn't shrunk. I'd love to know how many people would actually... What percentage of people would pose for a photo with a guy like that? Like, and forget O.J. Simpson for a second, because near the end of his life, somehow, I don't know how this happened, but near the end of his life, Charles Manson had become almost a caricature because people, most people 
were either too young to have been alive when Charles Manson was doing his helter-skelter thing and people were dying. He had become a, as I say, almost a caricature, this guy in prison who was the crazy man. Well, the media always wanted to know what he thought. I mean, back when the Iran crisis was going on, they asked him what he'd do if he was running the country. He started to make a parking lot out of it. I mean, they always wanted something from him because, you know, they become folk heroes in the U.S. Yeah, I but, would. But, but, if, but if, half the people down there carry guns, so they're not like us. But if, if Charles Manson was at a tailgate party, people would pose for photos with him. Absolutely. No Instead of running or saying, get the stink out of here, you're Charles Manson, I don't want your... That people would be posing. It, the point is, infamous and famous doesn't matter. If you have the famous in your job title... We seem to have reached the point now where it doesn't matter what you've done. I'm cool with it as long as I get a picture, as long as I get a selfie. I mean, can you think of one person? Honestly, can you think of one celebrity? And when I say celebrity, I mean someone who could be infamous or famous, who if they showed up at a tailgate party or a party somewhere in the public that people would actually say no thanks to and and walk away en masse from, I can't think of one. doesn't matter what you've done. I can't think there's one... Maybe in Canada there would be a few. I would like to believe. I would like to, I, I believe, actually, I believe wholeheartedly in Canada that if somehow Paul Bernardo was out in public, there would be nobody who would That's behave that way. I would, I would believe wholeheartedly that that would be the case. But other than that, who else comes to mind that you would say? Bernardo might get beat up. Uh, I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. But I can't think of many other examples, and certainly not in the world of sports. In the world of sports, for some reason, or entertainment, regardless of what you've done, there are endless second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth opportunities for you. And as long as you're famous, I want my picture with you. I want to hang out and say, I met so-and-so. Yeah, and they want to have a beer with them, and they want to shoot the breeze with them. And they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about, you know, the the day he ran for 278 yards in the snow and they uh, they hold their athletes and their celebrities to a different standard, uh, I think, south of the border than we do. I like our standard better, by the way. Uh, yeah, I would um, I would not have given well, O.J. Simpson two seconds. I mean, I, I I'm not done with Manziel yet either. Um, you know, some of the things he's allegedly done and been through. Um, you know, I mean, the Ticats started talking about him. After the um, coaches signing that lasted Art about, about seventy-two hours, and but you know if Mansell is and and I don't know all the details on him. I mean there was a plea agreement or whatever they can do in the United States. I mean he was young and probably had a fairly good size ego when you win a Heisman Trophy. I mean I think it's wonderful if he's straight as an arrow and. If his act needed to be cleaned up, allegedly it did, and he does that and he comes up here and proves the point, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for him. I just see this, going back to it, his agent comment that he needs to come here and be the highest paid player in the league, and I'm not getting the impression that he's did showing up. Did he actually up. say he needs to be the highest paid player well, in the league, or did he say he wants to be paid the same as the starting quarterback who, fa- who had little success? Fair deal means on par with what Hamilton has paid their QB in recent years despite having not much on-field success. That's Zach a Calaris, creative way to put Zach it. Zach Calaris was the highest paid yeah. player in the league. So even if Johnny Manziel is not the highest paid, he wants to be right there as close to, if not the highest paid. That is not, to me, Don, a guy coming up here showing great humility 
regardless of whether this is just his agent talking or not. He ultimately, Johnny Manziel ultimately can tell his agent what to do. That's his right. And he's not, it just, just does not strike me as a guy who looks like I am now a humbled, more whatever Johnny Manziel who has learned, maybe he's learned his lesson, I don't know, but this is not helping me come to that conclusion. You it just what, isn't. You know what, I, I, we don't agree on everything. I'd sign him, I'd give him, I'd give him half a million dollars a year and I'd start him. Well, and on a biz, from a business perspective, that might be the brightest thing. From a football perspective, you might not win a game. Well, and, and the reason I do that is give him the benefit of the doubt and give him a clean slate, pay him, and if he doesn't produce, then you don't keep him, obviously. Somebody else will take it. The Argos will take Do it him. the opposite way from what you suggested. You're starting with $500,000, but every incomplete pass you throw, we're lopping $10,000 off your pay. How much money's he got? <laughs> He's got a lot. His parents, I think, are in the oil business, and he signed for a lot of money with with uh, Cleveland. I'm sure he's got a few bucks left if he hasn't had too many weekends down in Cabo. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. A uh, little bit of um, breaking news, Don. Apparently, apparently, and this is just a tweet that has come out, John Herdman, many people will know John Herdman, who was the coach of the women's Canadian women's national soccer team that did so unbelievably well at the past two Olympics, two bronze medals, and a guy who basically turned that program from nothing into, as I say, a program where a lot of people suddenly know Christine Sinclair and Melissa Tancredi and others as household names. He has left the women's national team and has taken over as Canada's men's national team coach, apparently. So goes the story. I don't know if this means we're suddenly going to have a men's national team that is better than Vatican City's national team. Because uh, our team right now, our men's national team is awful. I don't know if even John Herdman is capable of performing a miracle like that, but there you go. That's, um, that's the latest we've got. One of the things he may do, based on... Bring in some women? Yep. Yeah, well. Christine Sinclair would be the first one to ever play on a men's team. See, it's interesting, eh, because, um, a good Canadian <laughs> kid there, um, is because the same association, if you think about it. It's like Hockey Canada. Yeah, and they don't say that the tech, the tweet that came out does not say that he left the women's national team. I added that part because there's no possible way you could do both simultaneously. It has to be just going to the men's team. You could not coach men's and women's simultaneously. No, it's a full-time job. And you might find out that the associate coach or an assistant coach with the, with the women's team is more than capable of being a head coach. If he wasn't, uh, if he wasn't brilliant at what he did, he'd be coaching. He'd, he would certainly be coaching at that level. So they may not think they're losing a lot on the women's program and, and gaining a lot on the men's program. Well, the soccer Canada has now sent out a tweet saying this is true, that he is now taking over. So that's very interesting anyway for a national soccer team that has been awful for way too long. Maybe, maybe some of that magic can be sprinkled on our Canadian men and we can have a team. Funny, that eh, win. that the women can be, that can, the women can meddle and we struggle so much on well, the men's side. I think there's there's a variety of reasons. There's a f- lot fewer Competition countries. May not there's be a lot fewer thing. countries that put yeah. money into women's sports, and so that's part of it. But uh, there's also there's other reasons too. And I don't want to just make it that it's just reduced competition. They've done very 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 well. They run a great program, and so good for them. All right, let us continue because we have a few more things I want to get to in very little time. World Junior Tournament. 
championship game, Canada beats Sweden. The Swedish captain gets his silver medal and promptly hurls it over the glass, saying, I don't want it. What do you make of that? Well, there's probably a different way to do it. Do you love the competitiveness of the Swedish captain that he only would settle for gold, or do you say, what a petulant little twit. I can't believe that he doesn't understand that they're, you know, you play as hard as you can and not everybody wins every time. Which way do you go? Well, we've got participation medals before, and uh, I've always given them to a fan and said, give this to your kid because I don't want it. Is that silver medal or participation medal? Silver medal. You're calling it participation. All right, so you're with him. Not interested. Now, I didn't get it on the ice and hurl it into the Same stands, difference, though. Same difference. But I'm not interested ever in being second best. I, I get it. I, I like his spunk. I think it was a bit disrespectful to the tournament and the others that didn't get a silver medal. I would never just pitch it into the stands, but I get it. I mean, who wants to be number two? Who? I mean, really? You Denmark? Know, the old... <laughs> Belarus? The old uh, the old saying is you don't win silver, you lose gold. I understand. No, I, and look, that's the truth, right? I understand that, and I understand his frustration and all the rest, and he played hard and he wanted to win... Look, he's, and he's 19 years old, uh, and he's emotional, and he wanted to beat Canada. Okay, he's not six, though. He's not. And I look at this, and I think, you know, I, yes, I understand that you wanted to win your gold medal. But to me, as if you put your best effort out on the ice, if you played as hard as you possibly could and did everything possible to win, and a team that was better on that day beat you, there's no shame to me. If you stunk the joint out, if your entire team wet the bed and didn't put in a good effort, then maybe. But uh, look, I look at this thing and I think I would be, if it was my son who had done that, I'll be honest, if it was my son who had done that, we would have had a conversation on the way home. And maybe his dad did have a conversation with him. You know, maybe his dad did say, look, I get it too. Throw it in a waste paper basket. Don't throw it in the stands. Or give it to someone back home or whatever. Uh, see, I really believe that. Give it to a young Swedish fan, not some American guy that was drinking beer that threw it on and had a picture of himself taken with a silver medal. I mean, the the way he did it was a little classless. It was petulant. And um, that's a big word for me. Well. Is it the same as classless? You can, you can buy that word with a silver medal, as it turns out. It's, uh, it's a $10 word, maybe more. <laughs> but it's, see, I, I get, I, I mean, I get the frustration and I. But he's going to want, you know what? I really believe this. He's going to want that medal in a few years from now. When he, when he may never win another international medal. We don't know. He may never play in another international team for Sweden. We don't know. But I bet you money that down the road, he's going to wish he had that medal. The same way that I bet you that even though the story was about Muhammad Ali throwing his gold medal into the river uh, from the Olympics, I bet you that if you had asked Muhammad Ali and he was being honest with you, he would have said, yeah, that's a good story and whatever, but I wouldn't mind having that medal in retrospect. I understand a moment of frustration, but to me- Maybe when he's 60, he'd want it. A temper tantrum is, to me, it was just a temper tantrum from a kid who, uh, he was a kid, well, he's a man, from a 19-year-old who should have acted like a man, and that, I completely am with you, I understand the part about you want to win, and it's all about winning at that level, and it's not about getting silver, it's about getting gold, I understand that, but as long as you've put everything you have into that game, to me, there's not a shame anymore in winning that silver medal, or getting that silver The way he did it was... Interesting. He'll learn. He'll, He'll yeah, learn. I'm waiting. To, I'm waiting for the next time if he uh, 
If he ever gets to the NHL and loses in the Stanley Cup final, <laughs> then they give him the Conn Smythe Trophy as best player. One of the few times a player on the losing team wins the Conn Smythe if he just hurls that into the crowd. Uh, it's probably not a good idea because that trophy would impale somebody if it did with that m- sharp maple leaf, but still here. <laughs> Don't know if he could actually get it over the glass, but that would be You're mad enough you can. Uh, I suppose, or just grab the Stanley Cup from the winner. Stay on the ice and grab the Stanley Cup and chuck it into the crowd. Rassle it off him. Take this home. <laughs> the Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.